With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. Hey, everybody. I want to talk to you about Squarespace Courses. It has the tools you need to create and sell your own online course. Start with a professional layout that fits your brand, upload video lessons to teach techniques and skills, and tailor your course with a powerful Fluid Engine editor. You can create engaging content your audience is going to love, then simply add a paywall and set the price. Turn your creativity into income with Squarespace Courses. So just go to squarespace.com slash stuff for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use our offer code STUFF to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and well, hey, I guess I want to say hey and welcome <laughs> to the podcast, but this is a little different because this, uh, this is the intro to the podcast. That's right. We recorded a live episode at the LA Podcast Festival. Right. And uh, this is it. Yeah, this is it. We did one on uh, Rodney Dangerfield. Uh, it was September 19th, 2015. Mm-hmm. The Sofitel in Beverly Hills. Very chic. Yeah, very chic. And uh, it was a lot of fun. So Agreed. We hope you guys have fun listening to it. And stick around after the credits roll, so to speak, because we have a little bonus track at the end of this one. How are you guys doing? Thank you very much for coming to our show. We do this normally, but um, it's usually just two of us and Jerry sitting here on Facebook <laughs> while we record. Like eating miso soup. Yeah. She <laughs> loves miso soup. Um, and then, you know, we do live shows too, but normally there's like a gulf of a stage between us and like, you guys are right here. So we're watching you too, I guess is what I'm saying. She's got on one of our shirts. Nice. Nice shirt. And she's the only one. <laughs> oh, I like that. I, I, oh, there, are, of course they are. It says I listen to podcasts before cereal. Burn. Yeah. <laughs> and on the back it says, but I love cereal. Right. <laughs> we uh, should, uh, we should also say hi to everybody in live stream. Oh yeah. Right? Streaming folks. Hello. And of course, thanks to, uh, Audible and Squarespace and, um, the rest of those people don't sponsor us, so I don't feel like right. they didn't mention anything. Yeah. <laughs> Does that count as a mid-roll ad? Sure. Okay, cool. That, There's a guy with a sack of money waiting outside the door right now. <laughs> Mr. Monopoly just hanging out outside. Uh, okay, so um, what you got anything to start with? I got nothing to start with. I usually don't drink uh, this early in the day, but uh calmed <clears> the nerves and is, uh, felt it would be fitting. Uh, as a tribute to our our topic, which we're going to get into, so I decided to work up a heavy sweat, <laughs> right? Because uh, Rodney Dangerfield is known for drinking and sweating. Yeah, you're so basically here, here just missing go. the tie. <laughs> it yeah. got everything else covered. Thanks. Are you guys familiar with uh, one Mr. Rodney Dangerfield? Yeah, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. He's a, a an increasingly underappreciated comedian. Like I've talked to at least a couple people who have not seen Back to School. Oh, I know, right? Boo, hiss. <laughs> and I was actually talking to someone who works here at the festival who said, is he dead? And I said, yeah. That happens a lot to that and guy. And she said, why don't I remember that? And I went, it's no respect. No <laughs> respect. That's the cool thing about the guy. Like he, that was his whole shtick. That was his whole, um, hook, right? Well, we need to start in the traditional way, don't oh, you? Oh, okay. You ready? Oh, very nice. Thank you. <laughs> hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuckers Bryant, and we are here at LA Podfest. And, uh, all you lovely people, give yourselves a hand. Thank you. Is that, that better? You feel yeah. a little more? You right guys it, right happy with that too? <laughs> Good. Okay. Um, well, now we have to start over. <laughs> How, so many people have seen, uh, how many people have seen Back to School? <laughs> Great start. So as we were saying, um, the weird thing about Rodney Dangerfield is that um, he was – his whole his whole shtick about um, no respect was actually 
really, really close to accurate, as a matter of fact. Yeah. And and not just while he was growing up, he had a really tragic, terrible childhood. But also as he got older and older, and even after he blew up, um, he still people just kind of took what he was saying and ran with it. Like he he had this one story where um he opened a club which we'll talk about called Dangerfields. So it's very obviously his club. And he was on his way up to the stage. He'd just been, like, called up there. And on his way, some guy stops him and says, Rodney, can I have your autograph? And can you also give me some more butter? <laughs> and, like, this this happened to this guy quite a bit, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it, it does turn out that you will see, even after death, the guy got no respect. But um, as Chuck will assert later, I predict, um, <laughs> He he is a, a he's a comedian's comedian and very actually well respected by the the, the ones that count. Sure, and uh, I don't know if you guys know this, but a lot of comedians have inner pain, uh, <laughs> which is the reason a lot of them get into comedy and a reason that many of them drink uh, till they black out on many nights. Uh, inner pain is no secret to the comedy world, but. You'd be hard pressed to find someone who was, uh, as legitimately depressed and, uh, sad as Rodney Dangerfield. He, he was like a, a crying clown for real. He was. He often talked about the heaviness he felt every day when he woke up. He said he would wake up in every day and there it was up lingering above him was his heaviness. With a capital H even. Yeah. And if you've ever, uh, if you ever want to go down a YouTube rat hole, just look up some interviews with the guy on YouTube from like the eighties. And you know, he does a lot of interviews that just, like local TV stations promoting movies and stuff. Mm-hmm. And when he's out of his uh, shtick element, it's one of the saddest things you've ever seen, man. <laughs> it's really depressing. Uh, he's, he just had this air about him. You could tell he had the, the weight of life on his shoulders. And it all pretty much uh, stems from his awful, awful, awful childhood. Right, his childhood. Isn't yeah. this hilarious so far, everybody? <laughs> uh, so uh, we should start at the beginning with him. Um, he was born in 1921. On Long Island. Yeah. Not in Long Island, Chuck tells me. Um, and uh, he was born to a vaudevillian father who took off with one of Rodney's brothers to go hit the, the circuit. And that was that. Like, he, I think he saw him like once or twice a year for a half hour, an hour, something like that. Yeah, he said he saw his dad literally like twice a year growing up. And uh, he was born Jacob Cohen. Uh, and his dad was a, a juggler and a comic. Mm-hmm. Who um, apparently hit the road because of his wife, um, who was, you know, we were talking about what an awful person she was, and we were going over this stuff, right. and that she was. But the more I thought about it, um, she she had a serious problem. It was, you know, back in the 1920s, you didn't diagnose things like they do today. Right, you but, just ran off to the <laughs> vaudeville circuit, pretty much. But she was clearly depressed, like profoundly depressed, and uh, sadly, completely abandoned. Emotionally and neglected, uh, little Rod, or I guess little Jacob. Uh, he was, uh, he was left on his own from the time he could remember. His mom literally never hugged him once, never kissed him once. He swore up and down. Yeah. This, yeah. And never complimented him, uh, or like tried to build him up. She, uh, she was a, a bad lady. And, um, starting probably around age eight or something like that, he, um, realized that if he was going to eat dinner on a regular basis, he was going to have to go get a job and go grocery shopping himself, right? So he basically raised himself starting about age eight or so. Yeah. Um, and uh, speaking of groceries, one of the one of the great things that stuck out to him about his childhood, he was um, he had to get a job, and after after school job, he was still in school, um, and he lived in a fairly wealthy neighborhood, but he was not wealthy, so he used to deliver groceries to his classmates' um, homes. Yeah. Which is kind of demoralizing when you're sure. like 10, you know? Um, and he also, while he was out there running around on the streets, there's a, he wrote an autobiography the year he died in 2004. And, um, it, he called this chapter male prostitute yeah. because he was like 10 and he was so unsupervised that there were apparently at least one or two local molesters that were like, Hey, Rodney, come on up. I got a nickel for you. Yeah. And he swears up and down that it was just, uh, that the, it was, it was just kissing everybody. Don't worry. The the child was just (laughs) kissed by the grown man for a nickel. Um, but he, and it happened a lot and he was doing it because he needed the money. Yeah. So anyway, Rodney Dangerfield. (laughs) 
Let's fast forward out of this horrible, horrible funk. And by the way, we're going to pepper in some of his bets jokes here and there. Uh, and I debated on whether or not to try and do it as him because it's hard. I've to already t- promised certain people <laughs> here or there. It's hard to do that. It's hard to tell a Rodney Dangerfield joke without kind of doing him. And I took a little informal poll last night with some folks and they're all like, yeah, you sort of have to. Yeah, I think it's so. It's not like it's a good impression, but. Plus, it makes me delivering it my flat, weirdo <laughs> affect where I'm not even trying it all the weirder. So prepare for that, too. Uh, but one thing that he did and that, of course, a lot of comics do is they turn that pain into funny. And he really relied on his uh, his jokes as a way to uh, – I mean, the only time he was happy was when he was on stage performing. And as soon as he left, that heaviness would come back. But he, he often joked about his mom. He would say uh, – my mom never breastfed me. She told me she always thought of me as a friend. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Which is a funny joke, but when you know the the real pain behind it, it's it's just like the saddest thing you've ever heard. You it know? takes a, a tad bit of the funniness away from it. I've got a good parent one. You ready? Yeah. So I remember the time, and this is my Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> I remember the time I was kidnapped. They sent a piece of my finger to my father. He said he wanted more proof. <laughs> That probably did not happen, but it gets the point across, you know? And plus it's funny. And so if you're I got in... one more parent joke. Oh, oh okay, sorry. <laughs> I tell you my parents hated me. My bath toys were a toaster and a radio. <laughs> funny. All right, that's going over better than I thought it would. <laughs> so <laughs> So starting about age fifteen, he starts he realizes he's actually kind of hilarious and that he has a, a talent for taking all of this horrible, tragic stuff and turning it into funny stuff. Um, and, uh, he started writing jokes and he got good pretty quick. He started selling jokes age 15 or 16 to establish comedians, right? Yeah. And he kept them. Uh, he had this duffel bag. He would write jokes by hand his entire career and put them in this duffel bag. So he literally had a duffel bag full of like thousands and thousands of jokes. Mm-hmm. And apparently I think, uh, you said that during a typical performance later, like once he hit the big time, he would tell like over 300 jokes in a set, like 350. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. In an hour. And he, granted, they're quick jokes, but right. still, it's yeah. amazing. But he, he remembered them all and he knew yeah. which ones fit best. Like the guy was a, a, a comic genius. Hopefully that's coming across here or will by the end of this, right? So he gets his big break at age 19. He's written jokes for a few years and he's going to try this out and he gets a job at a cat skills resort for, uh, 12 bucks a week. For yeah. 10 weeks, including room and board. Yeah. Think we, dirty dancing, that kind of scene. Very much so. Yeah. But he's like the the up and coming comic on stage, right? Have you guys ever seen Iron Man meets Dirty Dancing? That mashup? No, go check it out. Actually, <laughs> it's so bizarre. It's one of the better things you'll ever see. That has nothing to do with Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> that was just an add-on, basically. But um, so he's working. He's working hard. Um, the 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 stint in the Catskills. Like I don't think he gets re-up, but he he keeps going back to the Catskills. It's one of his regular gigs. But on the on the side, while he's working, he's a singing waiter mm-hmm. at the Polish Falcons nightclub where yeah, Lenny Brooklyn, Bruce. Yeah, where Lenny Bruce's mom was the MC. He was an acrobatic diver. Right. Um, but I know what you're all thinking. Triple Indy. <laughs> no, he did not do the Triple Indy in the movie, obviously. Uh, and For those of you who have not seen Back to School, that was an in-joke. Yeah. <laughs> he was a diver in the movie, a competitive diver. Yeah. Well, I was going to punish them for not having seen it. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to drive home a point. Uh, so in 1951, he gets married for the first time to a jazz singer named uh, Joyce Indig. And he uh, had a couple of kids and moved to New Jersey, which we all know is the death knell for any comedian uh, trying to work in New York. Kind of means you've given up. Um, but he didn't give up just yet. He did for a minute, for well, sure. Yeah, not not at that point, though. He was still trying to work. Uh, but when he turned 27, he quit comedy and literally did not perform from the age of 28 to 41 and at 41, he was like, let's try this again. Right. Well, his, he and his wife divorced, so he's like, I've got a little more time. I think I'm going to go uh, try comedy again. And yeah. they, they actually got back together like the next year and stayed married for another 10 years or something like that. But this time around, um, he was like, let me see if I can figure out how to how to balance home life with this um, trying to break into comedy, right? Yeah, and let me try and develop an act. I think the first time he floundered because he didn't he didn't know what kind of comedian he wanted to be. He tried singing. He tried 
impressions. He even tried prop comedy for a little while. But he also, I mean, and he had these jokes about how much his life sucked. Like he used some of these same jokes his whole life. Um, but they just didn't hang on him quite right because he had his whole life ahead of him and he was young and full of promise. That second time around, he was right there in the sweet spot, like age 41 ish, a little desperate, kind of sweaty. And, uh, these jokes about how bad his life, these jokes about how bad his life was or where it was going, um, like really just kind of hit a lot more. He adopted a persona basically. And, uh, yeah. it, it, that definitely helped. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was sort of him, but it was also a character. And uh, when I was researching this, I was like, I was kind of thinking about the, you don't see a lot of character comedians anymore. No. Like that was the sort of the heyday with like Andrew Dice Clay mm-hmm. and, uh, well, Rodney Dangerfield and Emo Phillips, and it seemed like there were a lot of characters, but now no one. Now it's just like, look at this thing that happened to my life and how funny it is. Look that at was, all these witty observations Chuck about my life. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to see some good character comedians come back. Yeah, yeah, I can't think of. A Are there any one? out there? I guess Brent Weinbach. That's kind of a character. Oh wait, right? wait. What about like Larry the Cable Guy? He's total. I assume he's a character. No, that right? is a character yeah, because he started okay. out as as a completely different kind of comedian. Oh yeah, and then did. adopted that persona. Yeah, but I don't count him as a comedian. So <laughs> <laughs> he's not watching. Don't worry. No, he's not. He's writing bad jokes. <laughs> going to start a flame war with Larry the Cable Guy. I'll, I'll totally take him up on that flame war. Uh, although he'd squash me with his sacks of money. Um, so he adopts his character. Uh, he changes his name legally, uh, at this point to Jack Roy, which was that his father's name? His father's stage name was okay. Phil Roy. Yeah. And yeah. He, so he changed his name legally to Jack Roy and that was his real name till the day he died. Uh, and he was performing under that name for a while until he tried this second go and decided, uh, I don't want anyone to remember Jack Roy. So. Um, he, he told this guy that was booking him at a club in Manhattan, could you just make up a name for me and put that on the, on the, well, I guess it wasn't a marquee, but on the playbill. Yeah. Or, you know, in any ad they took out. Yeah. So the guy, uh, who ran this place, the Inwood Lounge, I think, um, came up with Rodney Dangerfield, right? But the weird thing is, um, he had actually lifted the name from a Jack Benny character. Like there was an original Rodney Dangerfield and it wasn't Rodney Dangerfield, right? And that's this weird. The, the giant <laughs> twist of, of the podcast. It's all downhill from here. <laughs> so the, the Jack Benny came up with this character in I think the forties maybe or something like that. Yeah. Um, of this, uh, grade Z Western hero named Rodney Dangerfield. And, um, I guess the, the, the lounge owner remembered it and came up with that. Rodney Dangerfield had no idea about this. So he's walking around like using this name for years. Yeah. And apparently he met Johnny Carson once at one of his shows and Johnny Carson was like, you know where your name came from, right? And, and he said, said no, yeah, I, I don't. <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah, he explained the, the, the whole Jack Benny thing. And later on, he uh, saw Jack Benny, and Jack Benny wasn't, like, mad or anything. He actually said, <laughs> I really love what you did with the character, and you really, you know, you did it just right. So no harm, no foul. Yeah. It's and they hugged it out from that <laughs> very famously. So uh, on the second go-round, he was, he was making a living, doing okay. Uh, but he got his real big break in 1967, uh, with Ed Sullivan. He was, um, he couldn't get booked on Ed Sullivan, but at the time they would book other comedians for the run throughs as like just placeholders for dress rehearsal basically. And so he got a spot booked on that and apparently did so well in dress rehearsal that Ed Sullivan, you know, took note on the side of the stage, which means he went like this. You know, you're funny. Right. That was how you knew Ed Sullivan thought you were yeah. funny, as if he just told you. Bring that. him to me. Was that, hey, that's pretty good. You. Thanks, guys. <laughs> it works for Nixon too. You can do that. Oh yeah, it's great, Nixon. So, uh, and uh, actually, that was the result of a huge long shot. He told yeah. his agent, "Like, just get me on Ed Sullivan," and it it played out, panned out very well. He ended up being on Ed Sullivan like seventeen times or something like that, and it led to all these other. Uh, late night appearances. He was on Carson, like, I think a record. He holds the record for being on Carson the most 70 times, something like that. Yeah. Merv Griffin, Dino, like all the dudes who were running late night and basically were the tastemakers for all of the comedians were suddenly promoting the sweaty, weird, coked up, uh, uh pothead 
booze hound. Huge pothead, named by the way. Rodney Dangerfield, right? And yeah. he took it and ran with it. Like, right when he hit in 1967, he got to work like yeah, that. He was such a big pothead, actually. The original name of his biography was going to be My Love Affair with Marijuana. Yeah. <laughs> and he was serious. He wanted to call it that because he smoked pot, he said, for, you know, 60 something years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but well, up until the day he died, yeah, literally. For, uh, I think from like 21 on. Like he was smoking pot in ICU in the hospital because he had an early medical marijuana exemption long before anyone even knew what that was. Like he just wrote his own. <laughs> no one even knew what that was. But if he flashed it in your face, you didn't ask questions. So, uh, he got his big break. Actually, Carson, uh, had blackballed him for a while because he accused Carson in a letter of stealing, or one of his writers, of stealing one of his jokes. So Carson famously wouldn't have him on the show for a long time until they eventually, right? Until they eventually met, um, and worked it out. And then Johnny became like a, the biggest fan ever. And if you want to enjoy yourself at home on the YouTubes, just go look up Johnny Carson on Rodney, or Rodney Dangerfield on Carson. And there's a lot of clips where, I mean, Carson was just like the ultimate setup dude. And like, just let him just, do his thing. Yeah, and he would laugh until he was crying. Oh, yeah, it was great. Because he couldn't believe that Dangerfield was getting away with saying most of the stuff he was saying on TV, on Carson's own show. It was good. So he's he's married, he's working a lot, and uh, he decides that he doesn't want uh, to happen to his own kids what happened to him, which was to be neglected. So he said, you know what I'm going to do, um, even though no one's ever done this, I'm going to borrow a bunch of money. Quarter of a million dollars. And I'm going to open my own comedy club in New York City so I can stay home uh, with my children, uh, Brian and Melanie, I think. Right. And it's not like he had any money right then. You know, like this is a huge, huge risk. Yeah, he's doing okay, but he had to borrow all. Yeah, not that okay, right? So um, everybody tries to talk him out of it. He goes ahead with it. And it's such a success. He has the loan paid off in like 18 months. Just a huge success. And this this club actually became venerable in its own right. Yeah, it's still there today, right? Uh, Dangerfields in New York. Yep. And um, it had this uh, HBO special that it broadcast out of in a bunch of comedians got their big breaks on that show, like Seinfeld, um, Chris Rock, I think. Yeah, Jim Carrey, uh, what's his face, Saget. Uh, Jeff Foxworthy. Yeah. A lot of Jeff Foxworthy fans in the room. Rita Rudner. Uh, of course, Sam Kennison. He completely made Sam Kennison's career. Yeah. And that was what he, uh, and that's why comedians love him so much, because it meant more to him to play father to these young comics and to give them their start than almost anything else. He really, that was sort of his life's goal was to seek out talent that he thought was original and really kind of boost them up. He was a huge Freudian. Yeah. Yeah, the whole father-son thing. and I yeah. wonder why. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Chuck, where are we at? Uh, we are at Dangerfields. It is uh, 1980, and he decides that, you know what? Uh, I should start making movies. Because, uh, well, he, he made a few movies before that, but nothing that anyone would know. He was actually cast first by Stanley Kubrick in 1956 for the movie, uh, The Killer? Yeah, The Killing. The Killing. Great movie. Who said yeah? Wow. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, great movie. So he plays Onlooker. Um, <laughs> big part. Uh, and then he was in another movie. Uh, what was that other one called? The Projectionist? Yeah, it, it was a big part in a very small movie. He said that it was the type of movie where they went to go shoot on location by taking the subway. Um, Which is probably true. Yeah, I think it was. But he played the, the this uh, movie projectionist boss, and the projectionist had quite a, an imagination. And he was a superhero, and um, Dangerfield was uh, this arch-villain nemesis. Didn't, it didn't go very far. But no. He he learned almost nothing about how to shoot a movie because this was a 77, and apparently his huge, huge breakthrough came in Caddyshack, right? He was already very much a well-respected comedian, but um, when he sh- when he shot Caddyshack, Harold Ramis, right? Yeah. When he directed it, he said later on that um, clearly Dangerfield didn't know what he was doing. He was a live performer. So when, when Harold Ramis said action, Rodney Dangerfield would just stand there and be – like, you want me to do my bit now? <laughs> like, yeah, that's what action means, uh, right? Do your bit. And uh, so then Rodney would just turn to the camera and, like, do his whole bit into the camera. <laughs> He's like, well, hold on. we gotta, we got to get this right here. So pretend the camera's not there, one. And um, he finally got him to do it because that was the thing that just broke him out. Yeah, and he hated making movies. Um, like you said, he loved performing live in front of people, and that's where he got his, his rush. 
And he once compared making movies to, um, he said, like, you know, when uh, you make a kid write something a hundred times on the chalkboard and they've done something wrong, he's like, that's what making a movie is like. He hated doing all these takes. He hated standing around and waiting, uh, Plus, which is why he didn't make a ton of movies. He, and he, he felt like the live audience is like, he compared it to a heroin addict, like shooting up, you know, like he just loved that rush. And uh, he definitely didn't get that from movies, which, I mean, you got like the crew standing around looking at you. Waiting for lunch, you know, it wasn't his bag at all. It was not his bag. Uh, you found this um, description from Rolling Stone editor Ben Fong Torres, which I think describes him uh, like to a T. Do you want to read that, sir? Okay. So Ben Fong Torres, who is in Almost Famous, uh, <laughs> he, uh, he had a quote. He says, uh, Rodney Dangerfield looks like a midlife crisis. There's a surface orderliness. He's groomed and he's dressed like a businessman at a convention. Gray hair slicked back over a haggard shades of Mayor Daly face. Dark suit, white shirt, bright red tie, silk, silk stockings, shiny shoes. But the neatness gives way to what he calls the heaviness that looms over him. Life gives Rodney Dangerfield the jitters. He's in a constant sweat. He wipes his brow incessantly, tugs at his tie, herky-jerky. As he recounts the horrors of his daily life, he shifts his shoulders uncomfortably, and his eyes bug out of their bags. He moves the floor mic around as he roams the comedy store stage, looking for sympathy, but all he gets are laughs. I, yes. I just think that's fantastic, man. He nailed Rodney Dangerfield in that. Absolutely. And uh, his shirt and tie, that came about because, well, he hated clothes and fashion yeah let's just go ahead and say that i think it's time he was a slob <laughs> he was a slob he said in interviews how much he hated clothes how he never cared about clothes and fashion and was comfortable in a robe basically yeah <laughs> and uh but for one of his first acts he put on the red tie and the black suit and like dressed all dapper and when it came uh for the second performance he was like well they, they liked me in that so i'm just gonna wear that and that became his shtick was you know, this very dapper looking guy who's always very well put together. Right. In fact, I just saw uh, earlier today um, when he, he gave out a best makeup award at the, I think, 87 Academy Awards. Really? Yeah. And he, and he walked up and he said, hey, nice tuxedo, everybody. Right. And he went underneath torn undershorts. <laughs> <laughs> and you get this feeling that like that was the dead truth. Yeah, I'm sure. He probably had like holy underwear on I'm, underneath I'm that I'm quite tux. sure, yeah. You should look that up too, man. That's a great... I will. Because he basically does five minutes of stand-up at the Academy of Awards right. <laughs> and then gives out an award. So Iron Man versus Dirty Dancing. Yeah, take some notes. And then some Dangerfield stuff. Yeah. Um, should we uh, take a break here, Chuck? Take an ad break? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and we'll be uh, right back after this. Big announcement, folks. It's called a podcast event called <laughs> The Message. That's right. Thanks to GE Podcast Theater and Panoply, there is an eight-part series out right now called The Message. And you can get it wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, and uh, you know what? It's going to blow your collective scientific minds because it's currently rocking our world. Yeah, so uh, The Message follows the story of uh, Nikki Tomlin, who's a Ph.D. in linguistics, right? That's right. At the University of Chicago, if I'm not mistaken. That's right, and she's following a team of cryptologists, which really, if you say cryptology, you've really got me hooked already. Sure. They're a research think tank called Cypher. And they're trying to decode a message received from outer space from 70 years ago. Yeah, it's from outer space, we think. And if you're not familiar with the story, well, then I guess you better go listen to the message. You can get it on iTunes. You can get it on any of your podcast apps. Just go search for the message and subscribe today. Yeah, so thanks to GE Podcast Theater and Panoply for pushing the boundaries of the medium. You guys are doing mm -hmm. a great job. Mm -hmm. Go subscribe to the message and listen today. And we're back. All right. <laughs> I told you that would work. <laughs> so uh, he makes Caddyshack a uh, huge, huge hit. Um, he's allowed to kind of just do his thing in that movie. Uh, I'm sure most people have seen that uh, classic comedy, which Josh said would stink if it weren't for Rodney Dangerfield. And Bill Murray. And Bill Murray. The rest of it is like a tepid coming-of-age dramedy. It sucks. Ted Knight? He was fine, but, I mean, you can watch Too Close for Comfort and get just as much as you want, you know? I just don't think it needed to be in the movie. 
All right. I think it was Bill Murray and Rodney Dangerfield. That's what made Caddyshack a classic. Little Chevy Chase? A tad. A tad. You know how I feel about Chevy Chase. (laughs) My father raised me to hate Chevy Chase. (laughs) Did he really? Yeah, he really did. Your dad didn't like him? Oh, man. Still does not like Chevy Chase. Why? Just he didn't think he's funny or he He thought he was a pompous ass? Yeah. 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 Something about Chevy Chase sticks in my dad's craw. (laughs) And he passed it on to me. Isn't that weird? It is totally weird. Yeah, that's what you get when your dad's not a vaudevillian. He, they pass on weird stuff like that to you, you know? So uh, he makes Caddyshack. It was a huge hit. Now he was a legitimate. Uh, he was sought after for movies. Uh, and then in, in 1983, he wrote a movie called Easy Money. Uh, where Has he, anybody seen that? Anyone? Yeah. It's actually a pretty cool movie. It's not bad. It's a little weird structurally, which kind of makes <laughs> sense that he wrote it. Right. Because he clearly didn't know how to write a, like, right. a script. Yeah. He knew how to write a bunch of good jokes, though. So uh, he played uh, Monty Capuletti, uh, an Italian-American drunk pothead, uh, baby photographer. Because because this is back in the <laughs> early 80s when anyone of any ethnicity could play anyone of another ethnicity. Sure. Right? Because he was Hungarian-born. But, yeah. hey, play an Italian guy. It's cool. Uh, so in the movie, his mother-in-law was uh, the inspiration for twin beds and uh, hated her son-in-law. And when she died... She said, all right, you can have all this money um, if for one year, uh, I think like 10 million bucks, mm-hmm. if for one year you quit uh, gambling and boozing and smoking and uh, and doing drugs. So easy money was, you know, I had Joe Pesci. It was, it was okay. Right. Like the first half of this movie is just a series of vignettes to where he just completely screws everything up. And like that your stomach's all upset and everything and like you're really emotional and then nothing comes of it whatsoever. Right. And then finally halfway through the plot arrives. Yeah. And then it gets kind of good actually. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. A lot uh, of buildup, not a lot of payoff in that one. But, uh, one Roger Ebert, uh, liked the movie, even though it was a little weird and said, uh, basically the movie was about watching Rodney Dangerfield. He said, Rodney Dangerfield gloriously playing himself as the nearest thing we are likely to get to W.C. Fields in this lifetime. Right. Uh, and Rodney himself said that it was, that was pretty much me on screen. That's as close as you can come to my real life. In easy money. Yeah. Right? Yeah. He was a baby photographer. <laughs> so, uh, 1986 is when he finally makes Back to School, which was his biggest hit. Uh, I think it costs like, 13 million to make 11 million 11 million yeah. a gross well over 100 million um which in 1986 i mean today that's still good money yeah in today dollars that's 150 billion dollars <laughs> it's inflation for you right uh and uh this one he played he he had the idea i think he got a story credit of a guy a father that goes back to school who was a big loser in life so he goes back to school with his son to get his degree and he and he told that idea to Harold Ramis and he was like that's good but what if he was rich? What if he was wealthy and had it all and still goes back to school, like knowing what he knows now with a lot of money? And, and Rodney was like, okay, that's the movie. Yeah. It's a good idea. And it actually, I mean, that was a huge movie when it came out. It was the sixth biggest movie of 1986. It was behind Top Gun, yeah. Platoon, Karate Kid 2, Star Trek 4, <laughs> and there's one other one that's written down somewhere in here. <laughs> but they were big movies, and it was like the sixth highest grossing movie of the year, and it's Rodney Dangerfield, right? Yeah, and so he has hit it big at this time and is a huge, huge uh, movie star and a, and, the, and the biggest comic. I think they did a, a survey in the late 70s right before his movies uh, with college students that said that they were uh, Rodney Dangerfield was their favorite comic. Yeah. And he was 61 years old? 58. 58 years old. Same thing, basically. Was when he hit it big as a comedian. 58 years old. Right. And, like, college kids are, like, into this guy. And, actually, if you've seen – if all of you have seen uh, Back to School, if that's all you've seen of Rodney Dangerfield, you don't quite have the the understanding of what he was actually like. He was a pretty edgy comic, actually, and pretty hilarious. And college kids loved him in the 70s. He hosted Saturday Night Live in 1980 yeah. when, when he was, I think, like 60 or something, 59. Um, and he started to blow up like at about age 60. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Uh, should we tell a few more of his favorite jokes? I think it's high time that <laughs> you guys. We'll go over a few of these. Uh, he has a great joke about, um, his psychiatrist. I told my psychiatrist that everyone hates me. And he said, I was being ridiculous. Everyone hasn't met me yet. 
classic. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, oh, I like this one. It's low brow, but I like it. <laughs> you know what class is? When you're alone, you fart, you say, excuse me. That's class. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that weird? So if you haven't noticed, a lot of his jokes were, uh, they were self-deprecating for himself, but also about his family. He talked about his wife was dumb and fat and his son was stupid. Uh, and even when he wasn't, I mean, it was all a character. So even when he wasn't married, he was telling jokes about his wife. Right, which must have made it a lot easier when yeah. he went home at night. <laughs> Probably so. <laughs> but, uh, one of my favorite wife jokes was, uh, I tell you my wife can't cook at all. How can toast have bones? <laughs> And and your impression is getting better as we go along. <laughs> well, I'm drinking whiskey, so yeah. I'm, I'm not saying that. Brings out the danger field in all of us. Uh, let's see. I've got one. Um, so this is so. Like I said, it's a little weird, and I like that in a comic. Just sure. just bizarre stuff. Um, he he was talking about the bar that he was doing stand up in that night. He says, "What a joint!" I asked the bartender for a double, and he brought out a guy who looks like me. <laughs> I miss those days, man, where comedians just wrote great jokes, set up punchline, set up punchline over yeah. and over. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I tell you, I drink too much. The last time I went to the doctor, I gave him a urine sample. It had an olive in it. <laughs> <laughs> so great. So classic. And then uh, the, another thing I've learned about Rodney Dangerfield, when you go back and listen to his stuff, he wasn't like mean. He was self-deprecating. Yeah. Even when he was targeting like his family, mostly non-existent family, all of it reflected back on him and basically what a loser he was, right? Um, and he didn't have very many mean jokes. He didn't tell like many gay jokes. He, he didn't tell racist jokes, anything like that. Which, and this is like in the seventies when like everybody was telling yeah, horrific jokes much. like that, right? But he did have this fat joke that stuck out to me. Are you fat? Do you look at a menu and say, okay? <laughs> I love, love getting laughs from Rodney Dangerfield's jokes. We should just do this all the time. I was about to say, I think we have a new act after yeah. stuff you should know one day. Talk about a rush. I got one more. Uh, I'll tell you, I was dating a woman. She called and said, come on over. Nobody's home. I went over. Nobody was home. <laughs> Good stuff. I have a new career. Yeah. <laughs> Reading Rodney Dangerfield jokes. That's a whole... No one's done that. Cover comedians. <laughs> oh, man. Dude. Sharknado and now this. <laughs> You're all aware Shar- uh, Chuck predicted Sharknado, right? Okay. He did. You're welcome. Uh, okay. No more? You got any more? You'd like the one about his dog. Tell that one. Okay. All right. My dog is lazy. He's so lazy he doesn't chase cars. He just lays in the driveway taking down license plates. <laughs> All right. So now we're in. Uh, That's enough. Stop laughing. <laughs> in the early 1980s, he's making these movies. Uh, he won Best Comedy Album Grammy for uh, the album No Respect, beating out Richard Pryor, Monty Python, uh, Gilda Radner, and Father Guido Sarducci. Uh, and in 1982, the Smithsonian Institution put his uh, red tie and his shirt uh, in the Smithsonian, uh, the American History, uh, National Museum of American History, uh, right along with Jimmy Durante's hat, Archie Bunker's recliner, mm-hmm. and Charles Lindbergh's plane. But the joke Rodney said was, he got a feeling after they left, they were just going to use the shirt to wipe down the plane. <laughs> Right. Always self-deprecating. Yeah, Andy, and when he handed him the shirt, he said, this is a big a big deal. I only have two shirts. <laughs> Which may have been true. Uh, and also in the 1980s, um, who remembers the Miller Lite commercials from the 1980s? Uh, Tastes great, less filling. That, that man back there has his hand up all yeah. right. The and best, a, and right? A fist pump. He really liked They were those. great commercials. They were named, it was like named the eighth best advertising campaign in history uh, from McCann Erickson, the uh, ad agency. And uh, I, w- I went and watched a ton of them earlier today, and uh, I remember them all from being a little kid. And it was weird. They were, um, for the, those of you who haven't seen them, the premise was you would get uh, a bunch of ex-athletes and then Mickey Spillane and Rodney Dangerfield and some other random pop cultural uh, icons of the time. Mm-hmm. 
and to sell Miller Lite and, you know, get in a big argument about taste great and less filling at the end, Rodney would usually come in as the, the, the shimp who does something wrong to spoil everything. Screw everything up for everybody. But it was just such a weird, like Bubba Smith and Dick Butkus. And baseball players. And I get all that, Mickey but Spillane Mickey Spillane. And, I don't know. It yeah. was so strange. Yeah. But they were huge, and uh, they he really was the increased the one who could profile. score the weed for everybody else. Yeah, so they let so. him. <laughs> they let him on. Uh, January 1984. Um, if anyone remembers his hit rap single, "Rappin' Rodney." Have you guys heard this? Really? It's uh, something else. It is, and it it's, was uh, a big hit. Actually, it was a top 60 hit. Which is pretty big. Top top fifty nine, Chuck. Give it its due. <laughs> that means it was number fifty nine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, it was right behind Uptown Girl, and it was Rodney Dangerfield rapping about being old, which sounds really <laughs> bizarre now. But like legitimate rappers at the time, like say the Sugar Hill Gang, were rapping yeah. about like having dinner at your friend's mom's house. So it wasn't that far off the mark right. for the time, you know. It's like, be nice to your family. That's what raps were about at Pretty the time. Much. The good old days. Uh, he was on The Simpsons, I think, a couple of times, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah? I don't know if he was on more than once. I think he's on twice. But in 1996, he played Mr. Burns' illegitimate son, Herb, who got uh, no regard, no regard at all. <laughs> I wonder why they didn't say respect. Could they not? Uh, I think they were just, was it just a joke? messing around. Okay. Yeah, the man himself was there. I would have been surprised if he was like, uh, look, guys, just one thing. I don't want to say respect. Maybe not. Can we just avoid <laughs> that? I'm trying new things here. Trying to branch out, which actually he did branch out. He was actually a really creative guy. Um, he had a live Broadway show that ran for a couple of weeks in 1988 <laughs> called appropriately um, Rodney Dangerfield Live on Broadway! Exclamation point. For a couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he wrote a romance novel. Uh, called La Contessa, and if you Google the image for this, um, it's it's disturbing. Yeah, it's basically like uh, your typical. It was like it's Fabio, basically, with a woman, uh, except it's got Rodney Dangerfield's face on it. Uh, and and it's available on Audible. Oh, is it really? Yes, it is. With Rodney Dangerfield reading it. No way. I I kid you not. Would I joke about what's on Audible? <laughs> Well, his, I looked up earlier to see if his autobi- uh, autobiography was on there. It is not. not. It's yeah. the only Rodney Dangerfield thing on there. It's awesome. It, it, cause it has the album art too. So you get that for free <laughs> with the audiobook. Uh, he wrote, uh, and, uh, I guess he didn't direct it, but he, he produced and wrote the movie Rover Dangerfield, mm-hmm. the animated, um, classic about a dog who gets no respect. And then uh, Mr. Oliver Stone called him up one day and said, I have this role for you in a movie um, called Natural Born Killers. And it's about this sadistic father who is molesting his daughter, uh, raping his daughter. And I think he'd be perfect for it. <laughs> <laughs> and Rodney didn't get it at first. He was like, why do you want me for, for this kind of role? He's like, you'll see. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, did you guys see that, Natural Born Killers? You can get this scene on YouTube. It's when Oliver Stone did the, the phony sitcom. Uh, it's how they portrayed that that part of the movie. Uh, and so they have a laugh track, and it's it's really disturbing. It's like at least watch. three layers of bizarre, right? So there's so it's like Rodney Dangerfield is a sadistic, incestuous molester, um, but it's Rodney Dangerfield. So that's the weird part. And then there's a laugh track to to just throw you off that little extra bit you yeah. know it is it's very jarring it's, it was pretty well done but the um the the notable thing about that is that Oliver Stone let Rodney Dangerfield rewrite all of his lines and he got a lot of critical acclaim for it but he was like Rodney Dangerfield we had no idea and he's like seriously <laughs> Uh, if you go today and just Google, um, the Rodney Dangerfield of, you can find a whole list of things. Uh, he's such a cultural icon. That phrase itself has become a thing now. Mm-hmm. Like, Petite Syrah is the Rodney Dangerfield of California wines. Yeah. Or, uh, the Memphis, Tennessee City Council is the Rodney Dangerfield of local government. Seriously. That's a thing. Uh, I even saw a guitar preamp was known as the Rodney Dangerfield of guitar preamps. Yes. My favorite is uh, Palladium is the Rodney Dangerfield of precious metals. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that stupid? We're not making this up. So, Chuck, right about now, let's uh, let's step back a second. Mm -hmm. 
press pause on this and have a beautiful little message break. Agreed. Listen to this. It's a game changer. Amazon is now in healthcare. Yes, Amazon. It's called Amazon One Medical. They offer same-day appointments. And if that's not convenient enough for you, they also have 24-7 virtual care. Yeah, you know, imagine you're feeling so sick that even the thought of getting out of bed is just too much for you. With Amazon One Medical, you don't have to leave the house. Of course, what good is that if you then have to drag yourself to the pharmacy, but you don't have to do that either because of Amazon Pharmacy. It makes a lot of sense. Delivering things fast is what Amazon is known for, and that's exactly what they do here. They'll deliver your prescriptions directly to your door. No waiting in pharmacy lines with people who probably all have something worse than whatever you're there for. Again, this is a game changer. Thanks to Amazon Pharmacy and Amazon One Medical, healthcare just got less painful. Today's episode is brought to you by Altoids because, let's face it, unraveling the mysteries of the universe is tough work. But with Altoids, your breath will be stronger than a black hole's gravitational pull, more intense than an alien abduction, and more reliable than your phone's battery during a podcast marathon. When it comes to needing intense freshness, Altoids have you covered. Altoids are stronger than your favorite conspiracy theory, more intense than the latest true crime docuseries, and more reliable than a Bigfoot sighting. They're not just mints, they're curiously strong mints. Find Altoids in the checkout aisle. Grab your tin today. Uh, so here's some more examples of the, the lack of respect. And, and here's sort of the thing. The irony is he got nothing but respect from his peers throughout his career. Um, but outside of that, there was still just doses uh, peppered throughout his life and examples of times where he didn't get any respect, like when he sued Star Magazine. Uh, they published a story about him being in Las Vegas and said he would drink uh, like tumblerfuls of vodka and smoke pot all day long and do cocaine, which was all completely was true. Probably <laughs> dead on. But he knew that they couldn't prove it, so he yeah. sued them for libel. And the court ruled in his favor, right? Yeah, so that's respect, right? So uh, they awarded him $1 for his damage to his reputation <laughs> and $1 for personal distress. Yeah. And then the judge went, "Yeah, sorry, <laughs> live stream people. I realize it's our kind. He did, uh, he, he did get awarded $45,000 for uh, presumed damages. And uh, I, I did a little more research today on that. He... Um, Apparently, he blew it all on coke and weed. <laughs> Apparently, Star Magazine showed that they didn't turn a profit, so he couldn't go after him for more. Uh, he couldn't appeal for more money. Right. So he tried to go after their parent company, and it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And they said you, you didn't start the suit that way, so he, you they can't change it, it now. Basically, right. yeah. No <laughs> respect. Uh, and even in death, as we mentioned earlier, Rodney Dangerfield is dead. <laughs> Why yeah. didn't I know that? Oh, I have an example for you. Hold on, before he dies. Okay. He was on Howard Stern the year he died. And somebody, did you watch that interview? Yeah, I did. Oh man, that's depressing. He's 81. He's clearly like at death's door, but he still has his, his sense of humor about him. Um, but somebody called in to Howard Stern and said, Hey Rodney, it's Bob Hope. I'll see you in 15 minutes. <laughs> and Howard Stern is like, well, that's not funny. Bob Hope is dead. So they were saying like that Bob Hope was calling from behind the grave and would see Rodney Dangerfield in 15 minutes. And if you can't get respect from a caller on the Howard Stern show, where can you get respect? (laughs) So it was actually in that interview, which I said is it's like 45 minutes long and it's completely depressing. So don't go watch it. Um, but, uh, and not just because he was old, but Howard's trying to talk to him about his childhood and stuff. And Well, he had just written his autobiography yeah. and really just laid it all out there. Like, he'd alluded to the rough life that he'd had in interviews and stuff like that, but he published this book right before he died, and it was, yeah. I mean, it was rough. Well, I think the saddest thing to me about his mom was that despite being completely neglected emotionally and getting no love at all as a child, he still wanted to be, like, a good kid, and he still worked to support her. And like, apparently came home and showed her his report card. He worked hard to get good grades. She wouldn't even look at it. She just like signed it without looking. And, uh, that was the saddest part is he, he still sort of defended her in that interview, mm. uh, like right before he was, he was dying. And, yeah. and he made up with his dad before his dad died, apparently. Um, even though he never saw him, he said he forgave him for the, all that stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah. Really sad stuff though. 
You want to hear some more jokes? <laughs> uh, well, I, well, actually, why don't you tell him how he died? Okay. Well, in this interview, in this yeah. same interview, uh, he's telling Howard Stern. Howard Stern's like, he's about to go in for, um, for the, uh, should I pretend there's not a siren in the background? Or, um, he's going in for surgery and Howard Stern asks him, like, are you afraid you're going to die? And he goes, you know what? Dying in surgery would be the best way to go. Like I, I would go to, they drug me up, I'd go to sleep and then I just wouldn't wake up. That's like as good as it gets, right? Yeah. So he goes in for this very surgery. He falls into a coma during surgery, almost there. And then he wakes up. Then he has a heart attack. Then he dies. Yeah. That's how Rodney Dangerfield went. After that life that he had, that's how he went. He was so close to going the way that he wanted to go. And no, no, no respect. respect. You want to hear no respect? A year after he died, CNN tried to get in touch with him to get his reaction about the passing of Johnny Carson. <laughs> And, 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 if you read his obituaries, a lot of them, a shocking amount, mention that he was well known for his role in the scout. He wasn't in the scout. I got to the bottom of that. Oh, oh, lay it on me. He was going to be in the scout. <laughs> okay. The role was originally intended for him and Sam Kennison, and he uh, didn't do it for unknown reasons, and it ended up going to Albert Brooks and Brendan Fraser. Okay. But uh, it was one of those things, I think, where one of those internet neat things on the internet where someone prints something, then everyone else just copies and pastes it. So I think one person wrote that because right. everything else I saw was worded the exact same way. Yeah. Like list his movies as the scout, which he was never in. No, he wasn't. No. Thanks Very for sad. looking into that, man. Sure. That's what you get when you hang with Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he did find love again um, in a, in a situation in 1993 that everyone probably thought was like a typical gold digger. He was 61 years old. Uh, and he married a 30 year old woman who was really hot, <laughs> blonde in LA. But, um, by all accounts, everything I looked into, it, it was not that. No. Like she really, really loved him and was great for him and they were super happy together, um, or as happy as he could be. And, um, it, it, it turns out that it wasn't that kind of a deal after all, which no. made me feel good. Yeah. Like for example, when he died, she made sure that his funeral wasn't until five or dusk. Because he always asked her not to schedule any appointment for him before 5 p.m. So she made sure his funeral didn't come until after that. Uh, and his funeral was a really big deal. Everyone basically came out in droves. Um, his pallbearers included uh, Jim Carrey, who he, he took Jim Carrey on the road for two years when he was a struggling comedian. And he opened for him in Vegas. And Jim Carrey was getting booed off the stage. Everyone hated him. And Rodney stuck by him for like a full two years. And Jim Carrey never forgot that. Uh, Chris Rock, Tim Allen, uh, Larry David, George Carlin, Jay Leno, um, Adam Sandler, and then your boy, Michael Bolton. Michael Bolton. <laughs> he was supposed to sing, wasn't he? He was, but he was too choked up to sing at Rodney Dangerfield's funeral. Right. Apparently, they were really, really, really tight friends yeah. because Michael Bolton's uh, song, Everybody's Crazy, was in Back to School, and I guess he parlayed that into a, a trip to the set where he got to meet Rodney Dangerfield, and they became friends for the rest of their life. So Michael Bolton was too sad to sing at Dangerfield's funeral, and you know everybody was disappointed. I bet there were a couple of people there that were like, Whew. yeah, it's okay, Michael. Just, I, we know you're upset. You don't, you don't have, you to, don't have to do this if you don't want. You're, it's, everybody will understand. That's what they said to us before we went on. <laughs> so uh, we're going to close this with, with a final nice little uh, cherry on top about um, Rodney Dangerfield and sort of his outlook on his lack of respect with uh, when it comes to the Academy of Motion Pictures. Mm-hmm. Motion Picture Sciences? Yes. Is that what it's called? Yeah. As you guys call it in L.A., the Academy. Right. <laughs> he applied for membership because he wanted to be in the Academy, and he had the credentials. He was in movies. And uh, they said no. No. You you had to be in, like, at least three major roles. Mm-hmm. He had 13 under his belt by this time, including Natural Born Killers, for which he received a lot of critical praise, right? And they turned him down like jerks, right? He even got a letter from uh, Malcolm McDowell. Roddy McDowell. Roddy McDowell. <laughs> Which one's Malcolm McDowell? He's the good one. Are they brothers? I don't know. 
Are they? No relation? But Roddy, wait, okay, was Someone Roddy, went, no. was Roddy, was, <laughs> it was Malcolm McDowell. Stop saying it. Was Roddy McDowell in Clockwork Orange or Malcolm McDowell? That was Malcolm McDowell. Oh, well, okay, good, because I felt a lot better about this then. Rod, Roddy McDowell he was, was in uh, Planet of the Apes. Yeah. So, okay, good. I'm glad that those two are separated in my mind, because I was like, I really liked him in Clockwork Orange. Yeah. Good. Uh, Roddy McDowell, who everybody hates, wrote a letter <laughs> To uh, Rodney Dangerfield, this rejection letter that said that he um, had not he had not had enough of the kind of roles that allow a performer to demonstrate a mastery of his craft. Basically, you're just playing Rodney Dangerfield, and we all know it. Even though he had all the credentials to get in, right? So Rodney Dangerfield, he's like, let's see, what year is it? What year is it? 1995. What's new? What's on the horizon? Well, the internet. I think I'll build the world's first ever entertainment website. And he built his own website and realized that this would be a great place for his fans to come like vent their anger. And it was, as a matter of fact, like this guy, like think about that. This is 1995. Yeah. And, um, his fans came on and were like, to heck with the academy, that kind of stuff. And, um, <laughs> the academy actually relented and said, you're in, man. Yeah. You're in, Rodney. Come on in. That's right. And what did he say? Nope. Yep. He said, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> he still has a website, uh, Rodney.com. And if you go to that, I just found this out earlier. There's a section called jokes and uh, had audio clips. I was like, oh, this is great. Uh, but it's not him. <laughs> it's some dude reading like as bad as me. Oh, really? Just saying his little one-liners over and over. And it's not... In front of people, it's like dead quiet, and it's just some dude saying his jokes. It's really weird. I can't tell you how much I'd love the cover comedian idea. <laughs> <laughs> just, you know, how stealing from other comics is such a taboo. We just need to just, get just, out in front of just that. Just own it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mix up a little, like, Mitch Hedberg and Rich Little and yeah, blow yeah, people's yeah. minds. Do a little Stephen Wright there in the middle, Yeah, perhaps. Yeah. I like it. So uh, that's Rodney Dangerfield, everybody. That's our show. If you want it anymore, you're SOL. That's right. Yeah, you can clap if you want. It's cool. <laughs> hey, that was fun, right? That was a lot of fun. Yeah, we had a great time. And uh, big thanks to the L.A. Podcast Festival for having us out and um yeah please have us back we'd love to yeah it was really cool we got to see other shows and uh, uh we did our own and had a nice little crowd there uh, very supportive nice kind people yep. all the way around and look for the next la podcast fest coming i would imagine next september yeah. 2016 hopefully we'll be there yeah keep keep uh, your ears up for it we'll mention it whether we are or not because we're that kind of guys that's right uh, no listener mail for me buddy no but if you want to get in touch with us you can tweet to us at SYSK podcast you can join us on facebook.com slash stuff you should know you can send us an email to stuff podcast at howstuffworks.com and as always join us at our super awesome home on the web stuff you should know.com For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. My, my psychiatrist said, uh, you're crazy. Oh, wait, hold on. I already messed it up. <laughs> no, 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 that's right. My psychiatrist said I'm crazy. I told him I wanted a second opinion. He said, okay, you're ugly, too. Yeah. He wrote that joke, man. Everybody knows that joke. It's a good joke. Uh, when my wife has sex, she screams, especially when I walk in on her. <laughs> Boy, he wrote a lot of jokes about his wife cheating on him. Yeah. Like hundreds and hundreds of jokes. Because he wasn't married. Uh, if it wasn't for pickpockets, I'd have no sex life at all. <laughs> Gross. Uh, the football team from my high school was tough. After they sacked the quarterback, they went after his family. <laughs> That's a good clean joke. That's good. It's nice. Uh, what else we got here? Uh, I solved my drinking problem. I joined AA. I mean, I still drink. I just use a different name. Uh, I'm getting old. At my age, shooting up means using an enema bag. <laughs> I think there's one more about a dog that I, oh yeah, what a dog I got. What a dog. His favorite bone is in my arm. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's it for me. Yeah? 
I'm pretty sure. I want to say that I have another one hiding in here somewhere, but I can't find it. All right. Well, yeah. Go to the YouTube, folks. Yeah, make sure out. you look up um, Iron Man versus Dirty Dancing. <laughs> you will love it. Anything and, uh, else? No, that's it. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thank you very much. See you soon. You guys. Hey, if you haven't heard of Visible, well, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. Use promo code STUFF. 20 to receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Switch now at Visible.com. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. Today's episode is brought to you by Altoids because, let's face it, unraveling the mysteries of the universe is tough work. But with Altoids, your breath will be stronger than a black hole's gravitational pull, more intense than an alien abduction, and more reliable than your phone's battery during a podcast marathon. When it comes to needing intense freshness, Altoids have you covered. Altoids are stronger than your favorite conspiracy theory, more intense than the latest true crime docuseries, and more reliable than a Bigfoot sighting. They're not just mints, they're curiously strong mints. Find Altoids in the checkout aisle. Grab your tin today.